AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for February 16th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today we're joined uh, via the web uh, by Chris Hadnagy. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining the show today. Uh, Chris is a, well, actually, maybe I'll let you kind of describe who you are and what you do, um, but I know you're an expert in social engineering, so um, can you give us a quick informational blurb on who you are and what you do? Sure. So. I'm the uh, CEO or Chief Human Hacker of Social Engineering Incorporated. Uh, we specialize in all aspects of social engineering, so uh, corporate um, services that, that revolve around SE, but also my passion is social engineering. I uh, wrote the framework for uh, on SEorg, uh, social-engineer.org, as well as the monthly social engineering podcast newsletter and the SE Village at DEF CON. Oh, That's wow. the 60-second brief overview of, of me. All right, great. And we're going to come back to you in just a second um, and talk a lot more about social engineering uh, in a broader scale. But I do want to introduce the other people on our show here. Uh, we also have Matt Kaiser, one of our regulars, as well as Joe Harton. Thanks, guys, for joining us. And we'll, uh, we've got some other stories to cover. But first, let's, uh, uh, let's talk to Chris about social engineering. It's rare that we get uh, somebody with such a kind of specialized, focused interest. I know, Matt, you've read at least one of Chris's books. Uh, Chris has written um, one of his bigger books, I guess, more, most popular one is The Social Engineering, The Art of Human Hacking. And I think you've also co-authored a couple of other books as well. So I'd recommend anybody out there to, to take a read on that. Uh, so I guess I wanted to ask you, what are the, like for the lay person who might not be as focused on social engineering as you are, what are the types of social engineering that uh, you see really being utilized the most to attack people? Because uh, I bet you there's a few out there that most people don't even know or think about very often. Well, when we talk about social engineering from malicious side, I usually break it down into four categories. And if I wanted to go from least um, used to the most used, I probably would uh, then start off with smishing, and that's SMS phishing. Mm -hmm. So phishing text links or email or emails that are sent through your SMS uh, on your phone. Uh, we see that more and more now, but it's not, let's say, as widely used. Uh, then next, I would say impersonation. That's um, either where someone's acting as a fellow employee, law enforcement, your electric company, someone else, uh, you know, that that can gain access to details or uh, your corporate environment. Um, and then more widely used, we see vishing. That's uh, actually a, a, a word that just got into the Oxford Dictionary in 2015. stands for voice phishing um, or, or voice elicitation, as we say. So vishing, we're seeing that used much, much more nowadays in attack vectors. And then, of course, the most popular is phishing emails, and we can break that down to you know, general phishing emails and spear phishing, both of those being used quite extensively. Right, right. One of the things, areas I think is really interesting is the vishing angle. I know that there's been uh, a lot of people probably don't think, you know, first of all, uh, with social engineering, 
we talk about this a lot, and I don't know that people really realize that we kind of say one of our mottos is you are the firewall at AT&T. So really the human aspect or the human layer of a security defense is one of the primary layers that you have to protect your network and your enterprise because if a human can get tricked, it's kind of game over at that point. The whole social engineering angle uh, is an interesting one, but I did want to kind of talk about vishing because uh, I know I, I've seen some of these videos online uh, about various types of people who call you. Uh, there's a lot of different tactics, but one of the primary ones is people call up and say, hey, we're with Microsoft and uh, there's a problem with your computer. And there's some actually some entertaining videos of people kind of leading them on uh, over time. Uh, in any event, go ahead. I was, was going to ask a question. I'm thinking, because typically when I think of phishing personally, I think of someone who's setting up uh, a scam in order to, to capture username and password. For me, that's the classic phishing attack. Right. Um, but some people might argue that phishing also includes just the simple the, the setup in order to tell someone to download malware or to open up an infected doc file. Um, where would you draw the line as to what's phishing and what's just simply social engineering? Chris. So you're asking phishing like with a PH or you're asking vishing with a V? Phishing with a PH. Okay. So um, if we were going to go phishing, and that, this is a, and this is a, a, I'm glad you kind of, kind of asked this question. This is a common misconception I find in the corporate environments is that people always assume that fishers, when they're malicious, are going to go for something really deep and dark, like we want your credit card or we want your usernames and passwords. But there's multiple layers of phishing. Like phishing could be used just for OSINT or open source intelligence gathering. Um, they can maybe just try to get one piece of data out of this, this fish. And maybe that piece of data is just that this is a live email and you'll reply to it. And then they use that email to now search the web and find out where you've used that on forums, what uh, social media you have with that email address. And they'll scrape information on you and use that information to develop a more targeted spearfish towards you. So there's multiple layers, right? I, I would say that there, to me there's only a couple differentiators with phishing, and you have the spam, which is just those ads that really aren't targeted to you. And if not malware, it's nothing like that. They just send it out to millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people, and they hope you click the link because they're looking for you know, um, uh, bank data or credit card data because you ordered some Viagra from Canada you know, from a fake website or something to that effect. Those spam emails are one section, but everything else after that, I would put in the phishing category. Everything from a simple 419 scam all the way up to really detailed spear phishing. I was remarking with John before the show that we saw an interesting um, spam campaign recently, and uh, the come on was someone emailed a number of people in our company and said, I got an email from this, this admin account. It's kind of weird. Did you guys get hacked? And it had a, you know, an attachment, the attachment was malicious and it loaded malware, but it was sort of a, a cool twist on the old way of, of getting people to actually open the document because one, it was supposed to be from an admin and I guess people were kind of driven to read stuff. You know, it's, it's also marked like swearing email or something like that where it's right, like, right. so it's like someone has not only is important, has just had a meltdown and there's a record of it. Some people might want to read that. And at the same time saying, have you been hacked, it adds a certain level of, of urgency to it. So I guess um, there are a couple of little interesting uh, elements to that in play. And I, I think I've read that there are a few key elements to social engineering to sort of influence someone into moving, to taking action that's in uh, your best interest if you're a, a social engineer. Could you speak a little bit more about those? Sure, yeah, the psychology of, of influence. 
uh, really plays a big part in social engineering. And when it comes to phishing, usually they're using things like fear, uh, maybe something like that email you mentioned, like you just, have we been hacked, and the fear of that gets people to react. Uh, other times it's curiosity. Um, uh, we, we sent the fish uh, uh, to one of our, our clients, and it was uh, very similar to what you said. It was uh, from the CFO to another guy in the office, but it just happened to get CC to everybody. And it was, hey, check out the spreadsheet for the quarterly bonuses. Make sure I got all the numbers right. right. You know, so, and that's curiosity. So now it's not fear or anything. No one got hacked, but it was, oh, I want to see if, you know, John, John made the same as I made. And you want to open the, the attachment to, to get that, um, to get that information. Um, and then also you have things like greed and lust, which are used, believe it or not, heavily in phishing emails. You know, greed is, is a big player. I know we laugh at this and we say, how could this ever work? But 419 scams or those old Nigerian print scams, they still work just with some alterations and they work because of greed. And then lust is a big one because, you know, some hot Russian girl wants to check you out and you just got to click here to, to hook up with her. Those emails work on a large selection of people. If they didn't, we wouldn't see them anymore, and they still work. So those, those are the kind of the motivators that influence people to take actions in, in, in uh, phishing emails. What are some best practices to protect yourself from these kind of scams, or, or more specifically for people like myself, software developers? Anything software developers can be careful of in, in protecting yourself against this kind of engineering? The hard part with phishing is uh, it, it's much easier to give you protections when you're in a corporate environment, right? You should have security awareness programs. You should have a, a security or IT team that you can report things to if you mess up. It becomes more difficult when you're talking about the homeowner, the home user, the small business, uh, the person who has three or four people sitting in office and they're all the IT guy. But the, the, there are some still principles that are the same, which is, uh, you know, my rule that I always give my clients is don't ever click a link in an email. If, if you get an email that says, hey, here's your Amazon order, thanks for doing it, and you're thinking, well, did I really order this? Don't click that link. Open up a browser and go to Amazon.com, log into your account, and check your order history to see if it's real. Don't copy and paste it from the email. I've heard people actually say doing that saves you, and it doesn't. You don't want to copy and paste, but... You know, don't ever click. Second is hover. Um, I know this is old, and it doesn't always work on every every client, but if your client still allows it, hover over the link. If it says Amazon.com and it's going to, you know, hackers.ru, well, now you know that it's not the, you shouldn't be clicking on that link. You know, you want to hover. And then one the big one, this is a hard one to really teach, is we talk about critical thinking. You know, think about the email in itself. Um, why would somebody be emailing me for help and bringing in gold bullion into the U.S.? Is there really a group of hot Russian women out there that want to meet me? That's highly doubtful, right? <laughs> Did I really order something from Amazon? Just asking yourself these questions before you react to the emotion can save a lot of people from making really, really dumb mistakes. Now, from a corporate environment, I'll add one more to that. If you click something and afterward, you know, you open the attachment and something crashed, Adobe crashed, Excel crashed, whatever it was, something crashed, don't just delete the email and make believe it never happened. Report it. I can't tell you how many of these attacks would have been saved, the horror, the drama, the, the news article, if someone had just called IT right away and said, hey, I just got an email, I clicked it, it crashed something, I think the attachment was bad, can you check my system out? 
right? That guy uh, clicked on the email, opened the attachment. They got hacked by a group of Chinese hackers, and and it was six months before the FBI was knocking on their door saying, hey, guys, you know, you're sending, like, gigabytes worth of data over to China every day. And they're like, what? And that you know, that happened. Why? Because no one reported it when they made the click. So it's like taking some critical thinking actions and then taking action when. I, don't, I used to say if, but when you fall for a fish, taking the right action to fix the problem right away. And I would add to that that there's no shame in it either. I mean, it's it's definitely better for everyone involved to... Right. The, it's, I don't want to say fess up, but you know, let somebody know that it happened. Because maybe you're just overreacting, and that's completely human and normal. But if you hadn't, you know, then can I tell uh, you a personal story? Absolutely. This, 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 <laughs> this will be great. So last year, I sent 3.5 million phishing emails, and that's how I mean, phishing emails I, I sent 3.5 million. And my third book was released last year, and all about phishing. So I'm not saying this to brag, but I think I would call myself like a subject matter expert on fishing. And I clicked on a fish last year, <laughs> and it was perfect, you know. So I'm, I'm preparing for DEF CON. We have three major competitions. We're running a whole village out there, and I had all this stuff ordered from Amazon. And, I, you know, my office is a wreck. Boxes are piled up everywhere, and I get this email that says, one of your recent orders will not be... Um, sent due to a declined credit card. And now my rules, you know, open your browser and type it in. Don't click on a link. Hover. I didn't do any of that. I was stressed and I was rushed and I clicked the link. And a beautiful-looking Amazon page opens and I start to type in my credentials. And before I click the enter, I look up at the browser bar and I see, you know, something, something, dot, ru. And it wasn't Amazon. It was a, it was a real Russian hacker website. I stopped and I'm like, Holy crap! I I just I just clicked on a fish. I just actually got. I'm the guy who writes these things. I shouldn't be clicking on them. And it was a real humbling moment for me. And I sat there and I said, you know, so many times in this industry we say things like, uh, "No patch for human stupidity." I hate that statement because that means if you fall for this, you're stupid. I don't think I'm stupid. So and I fell for it. So what does that mean? Well, that fisher got me with the right emotional trigger at the exact right time and I took action that I shouldn't have taken. And if I had spent two seconds, I, I went back and I looked at that email after I realized I wasn't, I went and you know put everything through Wireshark and checked the page and inspected, make sure I didn't get any kind of infection. I went and looked at the email and it was for like a George Foreman grill and lead press on nails. You know, I mean, I never ordered those two things. Well, okay, I never ordered those two things together for Vegas, let's say, but you know, here I had this email and it was like, you know, I should have read it. And if I read it, I would have been, oh, man, that wasn't me, and I wouldn't have fell for it. But it was fear and stress and anxiety and all those emotions and feelings kicked in, and bam, I clicked the link and almost gave my credentials over. So it is, it is um, people often say, I don't want to tell anyone that I clicked the fish because it's embarrassing that I was so stupid. Well, you know, yeah, is it embarrassing? Yeah, am I proud of the fact that I clicked? No, I'm not. But the fact is, if a guy who sent 3.5 million phishing emails and wrote a book on phishing can click on a fish, I think anybody can click on a fish. So it's better to report it than it is to try to, to, try to hide it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sorry for that rant, but no, that was, to do it. No, that was a, a great <laughs> personal story. I mean, I guess the moral of the story, like you said, is even the most seasoned expert in the field can be you know, tricked uh, if the right circumstances arise. So I guess the, the right answer is never get stressed, right? Oh, you have, yeah. to, have to yeah. take it slow. 
When if you, you figure out the secret to that, let me know. You and I will make billions, okay? <laughs> One of the other things I wanted to um, talk about, and I don't think there's any real easy solution to this, because we talked about some things to think about when you get a regular fish, but I've seen some spear fishing, um, particularly from nation state actors, that is really crafty, where they've done research on their target, they're pretending that they're the person's father or a coworker um, or another peer in another company, and they, they send an email that's very plausible, that has you know, something on point about what, you know, what they might normally discuss um, with a weaponized attachment in there or a link to someplace that's gonna infect them. I didn't know, you know I'm, I can't think of any really good strategy to defend against that other than what we've already, you know, what you've already discussed. But I didn't know if you had any special thoughts or uh, whatnot on that type of subject. This is a hard one because this requires time and it's something that a lot of people don't have. But we tell, especially when we work with sea levels and large companies and we're doing things like uh, spear fishing work and they ask us, well, how do we protect from this? We tell them, don't ever open an attachment from an unknown actor. Right, just because this guy says he's your dad or he's relative or he's a bank or he's this or that, you don't have to open that attachment until it's verified. So this isn't 100% foolproof, right? And I'll tell you a reason why, but here's something we say. Like someone emails you and says, hey, please take a look at this, and there's no phone number. Hey, got a phone number? I don't know who you are. I need to just find out who you are. Also, a lot of larger corporations have like a sanitization team, right? You can forward that email and they'll open it up in a sandbox, and they'll be able to determine... Uh, from a sandbox if if that attachment is safe or not and that uh, to me is a is a is a good I want I want to say it's a it's a good solution for the corporate environment but it's not always good for like again we're talking about a personal now I don't know if you're you know you're you're focusing on the small businessman you know not everyone's gonna have like a sandbox set up where they can just start opening all these attachments and then seeing if they go to some malicious site or not so again we come back to the final piece being critical thinking you know, just sitting back and, and asking yourself, did, you know, did I expect this email? Who's it from? Is the request reasonable? Why would they be asking me to do this? Um, and if, if something doesn't feel right, don't take that action. But then finally, if you fall for it, you know, if you get one of these, it's going to be really difficult to recognize. And if you fall for it, tell somebody, report it so it can be fixed. What kind of qualities would you look for in somebody for a social engineering pen test team? Are there any character traits that are you know, instant tells that you would say that kind of person is who I'd like on my side? Yeah, you know, a lot of times when we, when, when we talk about that, people assume it's going to be the most outgoing, the people who could talk a lot all the time. Uh, but a, a real, if you think about this, let me ask you this question just to answer your question. If you think about your best friend in the world, the person who you feel the most comfortable with, can you give me three things, maybe each one of you, give me three things about that person that, Three qualities that you would say define that person. I know I'm putting you on the spot now, but think about your best for person, your best friend, or your mate if that's your best friend, whoever you're, you're in the world, and tell me three qualities that define that person. Well, I'll give you mine. Trustworthy, they're friendly, and um, uh, easygoing. So, I mean, that's like that would be the three qualities for my okay. best friend. <laughs> I, I would say I'm going to say somewhere between. It's a hard one to put pin down. Maybe loyal, but more like they've got my back. Like not necessarily that I've known them forever, but I get the impression that they would back me up when I was I, I was I was in trouble. Um, they have to be a good listener, and 
I think, a certain level of confidence in oneself and how they present themselves. Sounds like a dating list. <laughs> it, it could it could apply. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. And what about what about you? Uh, I was just my my best friend is he's kind of a. <laughs> he's fun. He's fun, and loyal. I mean, I think loyalty is really probably what you look for in somebody you retain friendship with for a long time. Right. So. So, so think about the th the things all three of you said. You all said loyalty. Um, um, you said that they were good listeners and they were trustworthy. These are the things that are common in between what the three of you said. Not a person who is the most outgoing, not a person who's the funniest, not a person who's always got the best jokes, right? And that is what makes a great social engineer, is a person who can make you believe that they're trustworthy, make you believe that they're loyal, make you believe that they're a good listener. So when we look for people that are going to be good SD pen testers, it's not the person who, you know, will do anything for a laugh. It's the person who really could be an active listener. It's the person who could sit you down and get you to talk about your darkest fears, your biggest, you know, hopes and all the things that happen in your life and listen and remember. People who can hear your name once and remember it later on and then use it. Those are the kind of people that will make you feel important and and from a good side, those are the kind of people that make the best SE pen testers. From a bad side, those are also the people we see that were the best scam artists and con men in, in history. You look at some people like Frank Abengale, um, you, you, look, um, you look at some of the best con men in the world and you read their stories and people will say things like, oh, but he was the nicest guy on earth, how can he be? You read stories about um, like Ted Bundy even, uh, he, you know, he, he's a, he was a horrible human being. Uh, but people, when he got arrested, were didn't believe. What? That guy? Like, he's such a nice guy, such a friendly person. How can he be a serial killer? And it's those people who have those qualities that make people feel like they're the nicest people on earth and the most trustworthy that can be your friends. And we won't go this far, but if I were to ask you, each one of you probably said that they're your friend, they're your best friend, and you would do anything for them. And that's what a social engineer wants, for you to reciprocate those feelings by now saying, hey, I'll do anything for that guy because he made me feel good. He's so trustworthy. He's loyal. He's a good listener, and and they'll you know I'll do anything for that person. I'm definitely gonna have to read your book. <laughs> I don't read a lot of books, but uh, this is one I'm gonna. I know we we do a, a monthly book report now, so I'm gonna put that on my list of ones to read. You still gotta read my book. Yeah, I'm not gonna read your book. <laughs> I want to give you a a, ca a caveat. So my first, a, a lot of people go to read the book and they buy the audio book. So I just gotta say, my first book, I did not read it. My first book was read by a guy who I never met. I never had a say in who read it, and it's awful. Oh, uh, he read it. it was, he he reads he reads the book like it was a like it was a child story. Uh, it was a, like a Tony Robbins book. You know, he reads it like, and then Grandma was hacked, and it was great. You know, it's like terrible. It's like, no, this is a bad story. Don't say it in a good way. Stop. And I've had quite a few people complain about that. So if you listen to it, just realize that the tone is definitely not there. Now, because of that, my second book, I said, I'm reading this one, and, uh, and I made the deal with Audible to be the reader for that book, so hopefully the tone is better, although you have to hear my voice for like 10 hours, but you know, hopefully my, my tone is, is better. And then the third book's not audio yet. Uh, that book is, is just on fishing. That's not audio done. So um, depending on which one you read, I just want to give you those caveats so it's... Uh, you know, you're you're fully aware and ready for right. this. Full disclosure. Get it. <laughs> yeah, full disclosure. Yeah, for sure. 
So, uh, Chris, right. well, I guess thanks, one Chris. final question. Um, if you're training, uh, you know, your employees or uh, people in your organization about the one or two things to look out for with respect to social engineering, uh, what would you recommend that they should be looking out for? Wow. I'm, I'm limited to two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would have to say probably first and foremost is phishing emails. Um, and more targeted phishing emails, right? So this would be number one. It's just that the, we're still seeing lots of general fish, but we are seeing a lot more targeted phishing emails coming to people because of how much social media is being used by everyone. Right. They're on every social media platform known to man, and attackers are quickly learning how to get that data. And with the breaches from healthcare and Target and all these other big companies, guaranteed your name's out there somewhere in some, you know, black market sales uh, event, and that is being used to scrape data on you, and they're developing mass amounts of spear phishing emails. So that's number one. And uh, number two, I would say, is vishing. Uh, you asked about that before, and we didn't get a chance to talk a lot about that, but that is a huge vector right now. Spoofing servers and, and that kind of uh, uh, tech that is used for, for vishing is so cheap, it's so easy to set up, um, that vishing is being used fr from all over the world. Every, every country that's going through bankruptcy or problems, we're seeing a mass increase in vishing. When we had economic problems downfall here in the States, we saw a massive increase in vishing. We're seeing it on a corporate level. We're seeing it in multi-stage social engineering attacks. Well, they'll send you a fish and then call you on the phone right after to get you to click malware that's in the email. We're just seeing the phone being used so much more in social engineering attacks. So a lot of times people pick up the phone, they see caller ID, and they automatically trust it. And there is no hover link when it comes to vishing. So we're telling a lot of people just be aware with the vishing calls. Don't answer questions that don't make sense. If someone calls you and tells you they're Microsoft, they're the IRS, they're, they're the FBI, don't believe it. Um, you know, don't fall for those things. You need to verify these facts before you give out any personal identifying information. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, with vishing, I think there's still, uh, most people kind of think if I'm getting a phone call, there's a lot less likelihood that it's going to be some kind of malicious you know, person on the other end, whereas with email, probably 10 of my emails are bad and one's good, you know? So there's definitely, people are trained to know about email a lot more than the, the phone type of phishing. So uh, I agree, it's, a, it's, it's one that is definitely on the rise and people should be wary when they're receiving a phone call. Is this really my bank? Is it really whoever? And if it is, don't give them your info, call them back. Um, instead of trusting that they're who they say they are. Um, I agree 100%. And, and because vishing does take the, the, the human element, you need a person yeah, to, yeah. to make vishing work, it is, like you said, it's not as frequently used as phishing, but it's being used more and more. I mean, just this past uh, few months ago, there was a huge IRS vishing, uh, and they had call centers of dozens of people, dozens and dozens of people in these call centers just randomly calling people each and every day, telling them that they're, they're uh, behind tax uh, from five years ago is going to lead to an arrest warrant and getting people to either give credit cards or Western Union or PayPal money over. And we're talking about four to $7,000 per person was wow. the average loss. And this is all over the phone. 
So, uh, you know, imagine if you're only getting a 5% close ratio, but you're doing thousands of calls a day, it still ends up being hundreds of thousands of dollars a week and, and lost just from one call center. And they had multiple call centers set up. Uh, Vishing is just a, it's a huge vector right now. Right, right, okay. Well, I appreciate your insights into all of this stuff. Um, it's really been interesting. And, um, but we're gonna move on to some of the stories we have to cover. And as we go, there's probably gonna be some things you can chime in along the way. So feel free to please comment on uh, the stories as we go. Sure. All right, so the first story, I'm just gonna cover this really quickly and not get into a lot of detail, um, but there is um, a remote code execution vulnerability in uh, Cisco ASA firewall. It's in the actual VPN. So there's a bunch of various Cisco devices. I don't have the whole list of them in front of me. I recommend you go just Google CVE 2016-1287 and you'll get the Cisco bulletin. They'll list all of the devices that they have that are impacted by this. But the long and short of it is they have several different devices that you can run as a Cisco ASA firewall, which um, part of that component is for VPNing so that you can remotely connect to uh, your corporate network or whatever is behind that uh, device. And there's a vulnerability, it's a uh, buffer overflow vulnerability that's been discovered in the uh, uh, internet key exchange part of the IPsec VPN tunneling. And that's on 500 UDP. We're actually gonna have a picture of that in the internet weather a little bit later. Um, but long and short of the whole story is, uh, it's a little bit technical how you actually would exploit this. Um, there's a very good write-up uh, up on I think it's execute my packet. We have, we'll have the link on the, the show uh, website uh, that you can read, but uh, it's a pretty detailed on how, what, um, uh, what process goes into actually being able to trigger the buffer overflow. And um, uh, it's one that you should uh, definitely look into because you could take over the, somebody, a bad actor could take over the device um, if they're able to exploit it, uh, which would be bad obviously, because then they could potentially laterally move inside of your network and whatnot. I think the people who published the write-up is uh, Exodus Intel. Exodus Intel. I agree, Intel. they did a really good job. Like, they will show you the step-by-step -step of how they, they they came to remote ex code execution on that box. So that's it's a pretty impressive write-up. Well, yeah, these Cisco ASAs are pretty common, pretty critical infrastructure for big companies. For yeah. So it's it's a critical you know, network appliance we're talking about here, so. Yeah, if you're a medium to big size company, you probably got a few of these uh, in your network or at your perimeter uh, for VPN type services. So um, definitely one that you wanna get patched. There are patches available to address this. So uh, make sure that you get those applied as soon as possible. So the next story uh, is one that you were looking at, Matt. We're regarding um, Kohl's and there was an incident with the, the Kohl's store Yep, so this, was, uh, this came to us from Krebs on Security, always a great blog to read. Um, and someone had reported to Krebs that there was an ongoing campaign that someone was using stolen Kohl's credentials in an interesting way. Uh, instead of, you know, typically if you, you steal the credentials to a, a, an e-commerce site, people will go ahead and they'll charge, you know, fraudulent things to it and get them shipped to themselves somewhere at some post office box or whatever in order to get the actual, you know, it's, it's usually related to the, bit, the line of business that they're in. Right. You know, you, you break into a computer store account, you, steal com you, you, you buy computers and have them shipped to you. In this case, it was a little bit different. They were actually targeting the Kohl's cash. Now, this is like in-store credit that comes yeah, out as- Coveted, hey, my wife covets the Kohl's yeah, cash. Mine too. <laughs> I, I, go on. I may have some Kohl's cash of my own. <laughs> but 
it was interesting because the, the, it was, the way it stepped through was people would obtain the credentials. It's not really clear how. But then they would go ahead, they would change the email address. So it would go to the attacker. The attacker would con control any email back and forth. And then they would make large ticket purchases, you know, $400, $500, things like bed frames, cribs, which would still go to the original address. But the Kohl's cash on those large ticket accounts would be sent to the email. Oh, and they would just okay. abscond with the Kohl's cash because that's a lot easier to turn back into to real money and things you actually want to buy. So, so are they reselling the Kohl's cash? Or? It's not clear what they do with it after that point, but obviously you get a certain amount of value, right. you know, a certain percentage of your purchase value in that Kohl's cash. Now, I keep saying Kohl's, and it, it really is that the, the article is about Kohl's, but this applies to any store that gives out instant credit once you make a purchase. Right. So any store that has, you know, online accounts that give you credit instantly once you've bought something could be vulnerable to the same exact kind of thing. So it's, it's interesting that you could, you know, there's certain ways you can maybe slow this down. Maybe you'd only give the credit once the delivery is made. Maybe you give the credit after a certain amount of days. Um, they do have um, email address. The email address is key to this, this whole scheme. Once you control the email address, it comes directly to the attacker. Maybe a little more validation on email address changes would be another way to prevent this kind of attack, where in order to change your email address, not only do you have to say, yes, I control this address and this is me, maybe there's a second factor of an authentication that says, I send you a text, are you sure you want to do this? Right. Something like right, that. Right. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, I'm familiar with the Kohl's cash that I was just thinking about. So it is kind of like an instant cashback kind of thing. So they were really just racking up charges on people's accounts. They didn't really want the merchandise that they were racking up on their accounts. They wanted the, the Kohl's cash. So I guess there's no... Yeah, what, what complexity I was thinking about, and my wife fences Kohl's cash, or she uses Kohl's cash. <laughs> fences Kohl's cash? <laughs> she uses That's Kohl's cash. That's a bit cash. of a mission, but, isn't it? But I know that when she returns stuff, they take Kohl's cash back. So mm. I wonder if when the people got the unwanted bed frame, <laughs> if they returned it, if the hacker would lose some of his coal cash stash. You're right, there's probably a window of opportunity that has to be taken you know, advantage of, which is why they go and abscond with it at, you know, immediately, and probably spend it immediately. Has the retailer had a response to the situation? I don't know that there has been a response, and I don't know there really is a response. Because okay. again, this, this sort of falls under the category of compromised credentials. If, if, you know, the, I wouldn't say that a company is responsible for you typing your credentials into a phishing site right. or losing them in any sort of other way that's not the company's fault. So I don't know that there is really too much to be done here. But I guess probably the leading factor that allowed this to happen was some form of social engineering would be my guess because those uh, login IDs and passwords had to get acquired somehow. Uh, for all those Kohl's accounts. So, um, uh, any thoughts on that? Well, you know, when I listen to and I hear stories like this, I, I always think about the different vectors that could occur. Even, I mean, obviously, to me, it seems like probably there was some kind of credential harvesting going on to get the initial credentials. Um, in that Krebs story, they actually said there was one person they interviewed who noticed there was like a few orders for $700 on their account online, but the the Kohl's cash was forwarded to a different email address. Well, you know, the hacker probably started another free email address, got the cash, spent it, bought items, had them shipped wherever, and now that's gone. It's gone. It's not, you know, from the sound of it, from the Krebs article, it doesn't look too, too traceable. But what's the effect after? I started to think, well, now that this is public, 
uh, how difficult would it be to start sending phishing emails out to people saying, you know, uh, according you know, to the recent um, news, you know, there's a, 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 a vulnerability here in your Kohl's account. We need you to reset your passwords. Please click here uh, to log in and reset your password, you know, or do some phishing attacks and get people to give over their usernames and passwords and start harvesting credentials on a grander scale now in order to collect this uh, this Kohl's cash. And then even afterwards, just being able to, to, you know, do what you said originally, which is if they can gain access to these people's accounts, maybe ordering things with their credit cards that are online and having it shipped elsewhere. And as we saw last year, sometimes just getting into someone's online account, like when it came to that attack on the Amazon slash iTunes, just getting the last four of their social with now their name, or the last four of their credit card, I'm sorry, with their name, could enable you to reset other accounts that they may have and reuse those accounts for you know either credential harvesting or ordering products. So this kind of stuff, this retail, it just seems to, to, um, to have a domino effect where it starts with one thing and it can turn into something just so much bigger uh, you know, down the road in just a couple months. The last two articles we talked about, and your, your comments on both were both that um, as long as it's somewhat in the, the public knowledge that this is going on, it can be used as a, as a setup for a fish. I, I guess my question is, have you ever seen from your experience that a certain level of, of public, I'm not sure how you say this, but it, big it, enough. It, it, what, like, at what, what point is a story big enough? does it need to reach? Exactly, right. exactly. At what point does a story become, you know, have that enough, not market penetration, but something like that, mental? Right. Just awareness. Yeah, awareness. Out there in the media, in the spotlight. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, like we saw it happen when Target got breached. That was huge. Mm -hmm. And then there was a, a ton of phishing emails related to Target accounts. So everybody was getting them. I didn't even have a Target credit card. And I, and I was getting phishing emails saying, oh, your Target account, um, you know, click here to get your free credit report, install this software to get your free credit monitoring. You know, I was getting emails left and right on, on that. And that was a huge news story. I don't have a statistic that says here's how big it has to be in order for fishers to start using it. I just think that, um, uh, that once it becomes public, and I'm still an advocate for making it public because I think education is really the only way to fix this. If you don't tell people what to expect, they can't possibly defend against the attacks, right? So I'm a big proponent of educating the public on what's available out there as far as attack vectors. Uh, but once it becomes public, also where we're now relying on the public to critically think and to act smart and not to fall for just any uh, email that comes in, and that always proves to be the catch-22. You know, you have to educate the public, but now you're relying on them to also use that education in a smart way. Right, right. Okay, so the next story was one you were looking at, Joe, and yeah. uh, about insider threats, or you know, I guess the various types of social or various types of threats to a, a company. Yeah, so this is just a quick story I picked up off of, uh, I think it was SC Magazine. Um, it's a survey from Balabit, and those are the people who make Syslog NG. Uh, okay. So they surveyed two Black Hat conference, uh, a bunch of attendees at the conference, IT security practitioners at Black Hat USA and Black Hat Europe. And they got 494 participants, and they published some statistics. The headliner that they used was that 70% of the respondents said that insider threat is greater than outsider threat. 
And, you know, to me that kind of grabbed my attention, you know, a little bit of a surprise, more of a surprise that there was such agreement on it. I mean, I think we kind of agree with that sort of sentiment, but I was a little surprised that there was such almost, you know, universal uh, awareness of that trend. And then another thing they went into was the, the top 10 uh, hacking methods. And Chris, you'll probably be happy to notice that the number one uh, method was social engineering. So um, that's another one that seems to be pretty universally aware as something that everybody in this field is, is, uh, is looking out for. So, and, and they went through others, uh, uh, compromising accounts, web-based attacks, um, physical intrusion, actually getting into physical devices was down the list, and, and rounded out with things like you know, new, newer technologies like access to cloud infrastructure and things like that. So just a quick uh, story on a survey that was done, but really, you know, had some interesting results, something that, you know, you could use in kind of pointing to the importance of some of these trends in our, in our world here. Right, or to think more strategically about where you want to invest your security awareness programs and whatnot. I think a lot of people already know phishing is, you know, is the biggest uh, avenue for uh, infections or compromise inside your organizations. The one thing I thought was interesting about this is the use of insider threat. A lot of times when I think of insider threat, I'm thinking of a person, an employee that we've hired or a contractor, or a human being who is maliciously acting um, maybe at the direction of somebody else or on their own to do something that would be you know, not in the company's best interest. Like a um, disgruntled employee. Right, disgruntled employee, thing oh, like yeah. that. This kind of is saying that it's an insider threat. It's basically inside your company, but it's not necessarily that the victims are complicit in that activity, you know? Yeah. So if you get fished and you didn't even realize that it happened, but now I've, you know, I'm allowing some bad actor into my company and they can laterally move around or steal passwords for accounts and whatnot, or yeah. other types of things like these uh, web-based attacks, client-side attacts, things like that, that allow them to uh, penetrate inwards. You, you have a confused look on I your face. I have a confused look. I mean, I, I can, I can sort of say, I have a hard time splitting that or calling that its own separate category. The the unwitting, well, the disgruntled employee type of no, thing. No, disgruntled. I completely agree with. I can understand where that's coming from, but I think my problem is calling anything else insider threat other than disgruntled employee or unwitting employee. It sounds like they're trying to reach down into the hacking methods section and tie those in and call that insider threat, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that to at be all. To fair, that might be John doing that. You know, I would add one more thing also to insider threat, which is sometimes just human mistake. <laughs> like, right. how many times did we read in the last two years, especially in healthcare, where someone left their laptop on a desk at, at Starbucks and went to the bathroom, or threw out the wrong USB key, or put the hard drive in the dumpster but didn't wipe it properly. Yeah. And now it's found by someone and on it was, you know, 100,000 social security numbers. Right, right. That's insider threat, in my opinion, because it was someone with trusted data, with trusted access to your data, and they made the wrong move on how to handle that data. And that is a threat from someone inside. But I agree with you guys that um, saying that someone clicking on a phishing email I would not classify that as in, insider threat unless the person was clicking the phishing email on purpose to hurt the company. Do but you but see, even then, there's so many see, easier ways than clicking the phishing email. <laughs> do you ever see vishing from insiders where uh, maybe a disgruntled or a 
Miss Displaced Employee would try a, a vo vocal uh, social engineering scheme? As a matter of fact, we we did have an account with a with a client um, where a person who knew they were going to get canned, they heard it through the grapevine. They knew that their job was ending. And before the meeting came, they called a few departments and asked some questions, used that information to call some other people, and they were able to gain access to servers they did not have access to. And they stole data on their way out of the company. They did not have good exit policy procedures at this company, and they ended up losing quite a bit of data due to that. To that. So I have seen it. But now I wouldn't say that that's as common as, as theft from insider threat or the disgruntled employee, employee, to me, is the worst of insider threat. Because now you have a person who was trusted, knows your processes, knows your procedures, knows your security policies, and they hate your guts because <laughs> they're disgruntled at their job. So now they have motive and intent to damage your organization, and they know exactly how to do it. That, to me, is worse than a, than a person who just, you know, uh, it's, it's still bad, but, you know, throws away the wrong hard drive or something like that or, or does some bad phone calls. That person who's disgruntled, oh, boy. You know, and, and to tell you the truth, when you, look, when you read stories about nation state against government agencies or defense contractors, those nation states will generally go for the disgruntled employee first because that's the person that they can get the most info from. You know, they're the ones who were willing to take the money in order to give over data because they already hate your gut. So if they can profit from you being hurt, well, that, that's all for it. Uh, all right. So uh, moving on, let's check out the Internet weather. Um, before I go into the regular Internet weather, I just wanted to bring up a chart because this is actually probably the most interesting part of the Internet weather uh, for this week. Uh, it's kind of same old, same old. Uh, on the heels of the Cisco ASA vulnerability that we discussed earlier on with the VPN uh, Internet Key Exchange buffer overflow, we see that right around, it looks like prior to February 11th, looks like maybe on the 9th and 10th, there's a little bit of scanning activity here, these, these four spikes. Uh, but right after that, we see a lot more. And prior to that, there really wasn't much. However, back on, what is this, January 19th, maybe? Um, and this is a 30-day view. I didn't go back any further than that. January 19th, there was some spike. I didn't try to go back and figure out who that might have been. Could have been a researcher. Could have been the person who was investigating this. I don't know. But it's interesting that somebody, somebody was scanning much before, you know, a, a time much earlier than the uh, announcement was made. So uh, that's a little interesting. But we do see an uptick on scanning on this, which means that there probably are people looking for vulnerable devices um, of that nature. So again, it's a good idea to go patch as soon as possible, uh, get a good inventory of how many of these devices you might have on your network and make sure that they're all cleaned up. So this is the top 10 of the most probe ports. And this is, when you look at all the total scanning activity, how much scanning there is, irrespective of how many people are doing it. And uh, as usual, 23 TCP Telnet, we see that at the number one slot all the time uh, for many months now, it seems like. This is a lot of those uh, embedded um, home routers, uh, other types of devices, your webcam DVR systems. A lot of them ship with Telnet open and uh, available. And whoever deploys them probably doesn't know that. A lot of them have a default password. And the, whoever deployed it doesn't know that they should change that. So they get broken into, and then people turn them into uh, bots, and they become part of a botnet. 
So that's been number one for a while now. Uh, the number, number two one here, 53413 UDP, uh, that is the Netis router vulnerability. That is, it's an interesting one. There are these Netis routers out there. Uh, there's, this has been known about for at least a year or more, maybe even two years, uh, this vulnerability, where if you send them a specially crafted packet, UDP, basically you can send an instruction that, that says, like a shell command, I want you to go get this, you know, w get this file and then execute it. So it's really easy to create a wormable type of activity here by just kind of spamming the internet with these types of packets. Uh, and if you hit one of these vulnerable devices, you take it over until such time that the user reboots it, you know, reboots the router, and then it cleans itself, but then somebody's gonna come along and scan it and hit it again eventually. So uh, if you have one of these routers, you should look into patching it uh, and or, I'm not quite sure if it's more than just a patch, if you have to do any kind of special firewalling or whatnot, but it's something you should look into. Um, I'm not quite sure what the concentration is. I didn't bring up a geographic distribution because I, I don't know that there's a whole bunch in the United States. I think they might be more uh, overseas and whatnot, but I'm not positive. 22 TCP SSH, we always see that in there as well. Similar analog to the Telnet scanning that we see going on. 443 TCP, could be a lot of various things for that. Uh, could just be people scanning for Harpley vulnerable servers or still, or other, any of these other beast attacks, freak, whatever, uh, just trying to identify servers that they might be able to use for uh, those purposes. Uh, could be looking for just other web services running on there uh, for control panels and whatnot, who knows. Uh, 19, well, 445 TCP, that's um, your Microsoft file sharing. We see that we know there's a, a long-standing set of vulnerabilities on that port, uh, but there's also a lot of machines out there that are sharing, NetBIOS file sharing, out to the internet and maybe don't have good security controls on that and they don't realize that they're sharing their you know, C$ dollar sign directory with no password. And people can use it as a file system that they can put their malware on. Uh, so that could be part of that. Uh, the 1911 TCP, this is um, mostly research activity. I don't really think that there's a whole lot of malicious actors from what I saw in here. Uh, but 1911 TCP is the Tritium Fox. Yeah, Niagara, uh, yeah, Niagara Tritium Fox. And it's a uh, building automation type of, uh, you know, ICS type uh, industrial control system type of uh, system. There's uh, some scanning. Most of the scanning that we do see coming off of this is known researchers that are scanning for this, um, uh, you know, just to get an inventory of how many are out there. 1900 UDP is uh, Simple Service Discovery Protocol. Uh, that's uh, the SSDP used a lot in reflection uh, activity. So they're probably looking to identify reflectors that they can use in their attack traffic. 3389 TCP is your remote desktop protocol. We see that a lot because if you can get the remote you know, break into the remote desktop of a machine, uh, you can basically, it's the same kind of rationale as why you would scan 22 TCP and 23 TCP, um, but even more so, because you get a nice Windows uh, login. And then 20, 21 TCP, it's gone up 67 positions in the top 10. Don't get your shirts in a bunch, because it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, again, this is research activity, um, and it just happens that it fell on a cycle that is, uh, um, well, I'll show you in a second here and we'll explain it. So here's the, the uh, Telnet scanning on 23 TCP. Um, we've seen, this is the amount of scanning activity. You kind of see that normal, what we call kind of sawtooth waveform, where you'll get a large spike and then it kind of degrades over time as they might issue a command to the bots. Hey, everybody starts scanning. 
and then ones that have quick access to the internet finish their jobs earlier than other ones, and eventually it kind of tails off, and then they issue another command, okay, scan this address block, and it kind of tails off again. Uh, so we tend to see those types of surge and decay type patterns in the scanning activity, especially when it's botnet related. Uh, and they're all issuing um, scans at once. The 21 TCP FTP, uh, which I mentioned, you'll see that there are these very regular pronounced kind of platforms of scanning around the 50 million scan flows per hour. What happened here and the reason it moved up 67 positions is because I was looking at this rightmost spike of activity here for the one day to compare against versus seven days ago, which was somewhere around here-ish, which did not have as big of a spike. So, but when you look at this activity and these big spikes, this is researchers that are doing kind of internet census type polling, kind of figure out what's out there and who's got what. Uh, so it doesn't look like, I, you know, it's not necessarily malicious. It's just kind of people trying to figure out. There's a few of these uh, groups out there doing that um, in, a, uh, in a good way to kind of get a sense of what types of devices and ports are open on machines. So this is the pie chart for the most sources probing. This one rarely shows a lot of deviation because it requires, this is how many sources are doing particular scanning activity, uh, but not necessarily the volume of their scanning. So it basically means we, how many unique source IPs can you get all going at once to scan uh, these types of ports and protocols. So uh, as we've seen for several months now, 23TCP almost accounts for probably 33% of all scanning in terms of like when we tally up all the scan sources, 33% of them are telnet scanners. When we look at them, there are all these home routers, webcam DVRs, embedded uh, network attached storage devices that are just dumped on the internet and whoever put it there didn't realize that they were exposing an administrative interface with a default password and somebody got into it and they turned it into one of their bots. The 53.4.13 UDP is a similar analog. It's all these Netus routers that are all now <laughs> compromised and they're scanning for more Netus routers and it's just this cascading kind of worm behavior that, uh, that you're seeing here with that particular port. Uh, 445 TCP, probably same kind of thing, not much of, you know, uh, uh, not much deviation there. Uh, there's still a lot of configure, believe it or not, there's still a lot of configure devices out there which was notorious for scanning on this port. Um, the 27015 UDP, probably not malicious, that's a gaming port, but just the way it works, it sometimes shows up looking like it's scanning activity. Uh, but in reality, for the most part, it's not really usually associated with malicious traffic, although I've heard that people are using it for UDP reflection for DDoS activity, but I haven't really seen it get picked up very much uh, in reality because I'm not quite sure you get a lot of amplification. And a lot of these ICMP ports are just backscatter type of things, probably not um, really malicious in nature either. Could be, you know, when I'm scanning or when these guys are scanning for 23TCP, they're getting ICMP port unreachables back, so you see that kind of thing show up here. Uh, and that's probably what most of these uh, types of ports are that are showing up. And then I did want to show one chart uh, for the 53.4.13 UDP Netis router chart. And this is the number of scan sources scanning per hour. This is a 120 day view, by the way. And I kind of wanted to bring 120 days. So you could see that probably 30 days prior or so to late November of last year, 2015, the, uh, there was no scanning on this. Even though the vulnerability has been known about, when it first came out, we saw lots of it, and then it went away. People forgot about it. And somebody said, hey, remember this? Probably when we talked about it on our show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, 
but in any event, somebody uh, kind of said, hey, remember that old Netis router vulnerability? Let's see what we can do with that. And then somebody started to um, start scanning for this really aggressively. Again, you can kind of see this sawtooth waveform again, which is really indicative of bot, bots and mass doing things all at once and then kind of decaying off as they finish sooner than the other ones. Um, but what we've seen is kind of a continued upward trend, relatively speaking. I would say it's around the 2530 in this middle of the pack here, thousand bots per hour. And now we're kind of peaking out around 45,000 or so. And there were some bigger spikes here and there, which I can't really account for why that would be necessarily. But in general, you see sort of a uh, upward trend. So another one to keep an eye out for, especially if you have any of these devices in your home or network or customers elsewhere. Uh, good thing to be aware of that. Uh, it's one of those things that can be very easily compromised. You don't even need to guess a password on these ones. So just send the packet and it'll take it over. So that's the show for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can also find uh, the ATT Threat Track program on the ATT Tech Channel. Uh, it's also on YouTube and iTunes. Uh, we'd love for you to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And Chris, uh, your um, Twitter handle is at Human Hacker, is that right? That is correct, sir. Okay, so people uh, who are watching the show, uh, please check out Chris's Twitter as well. Uh, thanks, Chris. It was really, um, really interesting subject matter that you covered today. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. And uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I'm John Hogeboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.